The Los Angeles Dodgers, one of the most successful and well-known Major League Baseball teams who currently hold seven World Series championship titles. Their home stadium, Dodger Stadium, is a popular attraction of Los Angeles and a historical site where thousands of Angelinos gather to watch the Dodgers play ball every year. However, what many Angelinos don't know is the sordid history of the stadium, the land which it sits on, and how this land was acquired. Hello, I'm Amelia Kim, and welcome to Forgotten History, a podcast that uncovers the untold stories and history of the United States. It's the people's history. Today's episode is on eminent domain and its legacy, the modernization and gentrification of Los Angeles. Chapter 1, The Travis Ravine and its Transformation into Dodger Stadium. So, before there was a Dodger Stadium, there was a Travis Ravine. So, what exactly was the Travis Ravine? It was essentially three neighborhoods called Palo Verde, La Loma, and Bishop, which rose up around the late 1800s and reached its height around the early 1900s. These neighborhoods were composed of Mexican and Mexican-American families who weren't able to find housing in Los Angeles due to redlining and other racial covenants limiting where people of color could purchase property. Redlining is a practice that began in the 1930s, where cities such as New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago were divided into four categories by the Homeowners Loan Corporation, which was greatly influenced by the racial makeup of the area. Areas that had high concentrations of black and brown people were marked red, and deemed a high risk for mortgage lenders. So essentially, redlining determined which areas were prioritized and invested in, and the consequences of redlining are still present and felt today. Because due to redlining, communities of color were given little to no resources, and the areas were considered a lost cause by the cities. So the neighborhoods of Palo Verde, La Loma, and Bishop formed as a reaction to the city government's mistreatment of Mexican and Mexican-American families. These neighborhoods were a safe haven for the families, as they were a space in which Mexican and Mexican-American individuals could own a home and have access to housing, which wasn't possible in the rest of Los Angeles. And for that reason, the three neighborhoods that made up the Chavez Ravine were extremely self-sufficient, with an elementary school in the area, a local grocery store, a church with regular religious celebrations, and residents often raised livestock. The Mexican and Mexican-American families created a community that provided for their own needs in a city that ignored their well-being and interests. Then, on July 24, 1950, the residents of the neighborhoods received notices of eviction, informing them that their homes would be torn down in order to redevelop the Chavez Ravine into an affordable, high-rise public federal housing project known as Elysian Park Heights. The notice also mentioned that residents' houses and or property would be appraised by the city housing authority to determine how much the residents would be compensated for their loss. If eligible, the residents were promised first pick of the units in Elysian Park Heights. The city government was able to serve the residents of Chavez Ravine with eviction notices through eminent domain, which gives government entities the authority to seize private property for a public use under the stipulation that the property owner is fairly compensated. Initially, the residents of Travis Ravine refused to accept the city's offer and held out on putting their property up for sale to the city. The Travis Ravine residents rallied together and protested against the LA city government. However, residents were pressured to sell their homes by the city housing authority as they informed residents that if they refused to sell their property, they would receive nothing for it and be forced to leave their homes eventually. 
As plans for Elysian Park Heights progressed, many residents gave in since they were fearful of ending up with no money and no home. The City Housing Authority successfully convinced most residents that by selling their homes, they would at least be compensated for their loss. However, when the City Housing Authority employees appraised the houses, they severely underestimated the value of properties in the Chavez Ravine, and the residents were lowballed for their houses. Subsequently, the residents of the neighborhood were forced to accept the outrageously reduced offers with the alternative of being left with nothing. Land, in particular land ownership, is the most common method in which generational wealth can be accumulated and passed on to future generations in the United States. Hence, these cases were not only a confiscation of land, but also the government depriving and robbing the Mexican and Mexican-American families of Palo Verde, La Loma, and Bishop of their opportunity to acquire generational wealth and financial stability. Eminent domain was exploited to purposely destroy and clear out these self-built communities of color. The residents lost everything while barely being compensated to make up for their huge losses. The disregard shown towards people of color in their homes demonstrated how unconcerned the government was with the well-being of the people. The city depicted the situation where eminent domain was evoked as quote-unquote worth the sacrifice, since the land was regarded by the city as a shantytown and it would be repurposed for a modern public housing project. But nothing is ever worth displacing people from their homes. The Chavez Ravine was a self-made sanctuary for Mexican and Mexican-American families, and therefore the destruction of the properties represents the decimation of the resilience, unity, and security which was created and existed in, the, in these communities. However, Plans for the public housing project would change after May 26, 1953, when Norris Polson was elected as the new mayor of Los Angeles. This change in leadership was a turning point for Los Angeles, as Polson was a well-known conservative who was extremely against public housing. The public housing project was never built on the account of the substantial pushback it received from Norris Polson and the House Un-American Activities Committee, a committee dedicated to investigating organizations or individuals suspected of communist or fascist ties. To turn the public against the Elysian Park Heights project, Mayor Polson and his constituents circulated propaganda that preyed on the heightened anti-communist paranoia of the time. Public housing was portrayed as a socialist policy that was giving away valuable resources to quote-unquote undeserving and lazy people. The propaganda depicted public housing as a step towards communism, which eventually turned the public against public housing projects in Los Angeles. Then, on July 6, 1953, Mayor Polson proposed a plan which would drastically reduce the number of public housing projects in Los Angeles. This plan eliminated Elysian Park Heights. The plan was adopted by the LA City Council, and Elysian Park Heights was cancelled. However, most of the Chavez Ravine residents had already vacated their homes by this time. So rather than returning the property to the residents, the area known as the Chavez Ravine was sold at a significantly reduced price to the City of Los Angeles by the Federal Housing Authority in 1954, with the requirement that the land was to be put into public use. Instead of using the land for a public purpose, the city circumvented the requirement set by the purchase and sold the Chavez Ravine to Walter O'Malley, the then owner of the Dodgers in 1957. The city offered the Chavez Ravine to O'Malley in order to secure the Dodgers' move to Los Angeles, as he had wanted to build a state-of-the-art stadium and considered the Chavez Ravine as the perfect location for it. 
Mayor Norris Polson viewed the Dodgers as an investment, as the city of Los Angeles having a Major League Baseball team would give the city not only prestige, but also boost the economy. And it would also serve as a uniting force by creating a shared experience for the city's residents and therefore uniting the people in this intensely segregated and separated city. This is what led to O'Malley acquiring the Chaves Ravine, despite the Dodgers being a private enterprise. Before the construction for the Dodgers Stadium could begin, the city had to deal with just one problem. A couple of families still resided in the Chavez Ravine as they had refused to leave their homes in the early 1950s when the city first sent out eviction notices. Legally, the land belonged to the city of Los Angeles, but after the cancellation of Illusion Park Heights, the City Housing Authority, or the CHA, suspended the eviction procedures. The city had to clear out the Chavez Ravine to make way for the future Dodger Stadium. So in the spring of 1959, the CHA decided to resume eviction procedures for the last few residents of the Chavez Ravine to allow for the construction of Dodger Stadium to begin. The families were notified to leave their homes before May 8, 1959. The Adachiga family refused to evacuate their homes, as this was where they had created their home, spent their time, a place full of memories, and thus irreplaceable. The city responded by sending the L.A. County Sheriff Department and bulldozers to the Adachiga residence on May 9, 1959. This date is known as Black Friday since the Adachiga family was forcibly evicted out of their home. The sheriff's deputies knocked down the Adachiga's door and family furniture was hauled out and members of the family were forcibly escorted out. Most notably, Aurora Vargas was dragged out of the house by four deputies since she declined their demand to leave. The Adachiga family home was bulldozed within minutes of their eviction. The neighborhoods of Palo Verde, La Loma, and Bishop weren't initially evacuated for the sake of Dodger Stadium. Nevertheless, the land was obtained under the condition that it would be used exclusively for a public project. The federal and city government refused to return the land back to the residents despite the cancellation of the public housing project demonstrating the trivialness of the public use clause of eminent domain. The Chavez Ravine demonstrates the government's ability to loosely interpret eminent domain, which opens up the possibility of eminent domain being used to obtain land for private enterprises. It also reveals the LA city government's ruthlessness towards and disregard of communities of color in favor of furthering the city's own agenda and economic interests. Chapter 2, Eminent Domain, Its Misinterpretation and Abuse of Power As stated previously, eminent domain gives government entities the authority to seize private property for a public use. Eminent domain is legitimized through the Fifth Amendment, which states, quote, Nor shall private property be taken for public use without just compensation, unquote. In simple terms, it means the government is required to compensate the property owners in order for the government to exercise the power of eminent domain. However, the government gets to set the terms for what is considered fair or just compensation. While all private property falls under the jurisdiction of eminent domain, and thus any individual is susceptible, there are certain groups in particular, low-income minorities, as seen in the case of the Travis Ravine, which are most vulnerable to eminent domain and displacement since they lack the financial power to fight back against the city. Although eminent domain has specific regulations government entities are required to abide by, 
What often happens is that eminent domain is misused and applied in situations that don't meet the criteria. The Travis Ravine is just one example of the government's abuse of power granted by eminent domain, as seen in the unfair compensation of the residents and the sale of the land to a private party. Under eminent domain, government entities can seize land, but this land has to be converted for public use. It would seem that the land acquired through eminent domain is exclusive to public projects. However, the U.S. government interprets the guidelines of eminent domain differently. In 1954, the Supreme Court ruled in Berman v. Parker that public use didn't just refer to public projects, but could also apply to private projects that serve the public or have a public purpose, which include physical, aesthetic, and monetary benefits. Through this interpretation of public use in eminent domain, government entities are able to use eminent domain to attain private property and sell it to private parties. In the case of the Travis Ravine, the repercussion of this broad definition of public purpose was that the city targeted a self-sufficient community of color that was coded by the city as an area in need of redevelopment. However, even if the city government follows the guidelines of eminent domain, it still has drastic repercussions for low-income communities of color. In the late 1990s, the Los Angeles Unified School District announced that it was embarking on a huge land acquisition and construction program to build more schools in Los Angeles due to overcrowding. The land was acquired through eminent domain, and the land obtained was a block with predominantly low-income Latinx residents that were eventually displaced. While new schools were built, which was necessary as there was a school shortage, it was at the cost of low-income Latinx residents. This project received backlash from the families it displaced, but since it was just a small portion of families without the financial resources to fight back against the city, it went mostly unnoticed. The strategy of misinterpreting or finding loopholes and policies related to housing and land and sacrificing low-income minorities are still employed by the city of Los Angeles to this day. The city's negligence of communities of color remains the same, but its practice has evolved. Chapter 3. Gentrification, the Displacement and Destruction of Communities of Color Now, what exactly is gentrification? Gentrification, as defined by the Urban Displacement Project, is the process of neighborhood change that includes economic change in historically disinvested neighborhoods by means of real estate investment and new or high-income residents moving in, as well as demographic change, not only in terms of income level, but also in terms of changes in education level or racial makeup of residents. And as stated before, due to redlining, the neighborhoods that were mostly disinvested were neighborhoods that were predominantly um, residents of color. So thus, gentrification disproportionately impacts people of color as they are disproportionately um, displaced. The media frames gentrification as the younger demographics, specifically well-off white 20 or 30-somethings looking for an inexpensive neighborhood to live in and developers following the consumer demand. However, this doesn't align with the definition produced by the Urban Displacement Project and also Neil Smith, a prominent anthropology professor and Peter Motzkowitz, author of How to Kill a City, Gentrification, Inequality, and the Fight for the Neighborhood, argue that developers and real estate investors are the leaders for the gentrification charge. The public's understanding of gentrification is one that places all the responsibility on the newcomers, 
While non-native residents contribute to gentrification and should be held accountable, this narrative hides the true culprit responsible for gentrification. The definitions of gentrification presented by Motzkowitz, Smith, and the Urban Displacement Project all point towards the concept of gentrification being led by investors and developers, which all point towards gentrification being sanctioned by the government, which is also called government-sanctioned gentrification. The city of Los Angeles is a great case study for understanding government-sanctioned gentrification and how it operates, since there is a current ongoing gentrification crisis and the history of gentrification in Los Angeles with cases such as the Chavez Ravine. Gentrification has plagued the city of Los Angeles, and the widespread gentrification in Los Angeles stems from the city government's agenda of modernizing the city, which is not a recent development. This agenda manifests itself in the redevelopment of what the city deems quote-unquote filthy and slums, which is really just coded language for low-income communities of color, into new stylish buildings and apartment complexes by developers, which consequently drives up the market price and rent location, thus displacing the low-income minority residents. These all work towards ensuring and maintaining Los Angeles' status as a trendy, high-profile city. In his article, This Modern Marvel, Bunker Hill, Chavez Ravine, and the Politics of Modernism in Los Angeles, Don Parson illuminates how the city's agenda of modernization was the driving force behind the seizure of Chavez Ravine and the Dodgers' purchase of the property. It caused and justified the destruction and mass displacement that took place in the neighborhoods of Palo Verde, La Loma, and Bishop. The Chavez Ravine was simply one instance, and probably not the first, of the city government's attempt to revitalize the city in order to cement Los Angeles' newfound elite city status. When asked about the Chavez Ravine and the forced eviction of its residents in 1953, the then Mayor Polson said, quote, If you are not prepared to be part of this greatness, if you want Los Angeles to revert to Pueblo status, then my best advice to you is to prepare to settle somewhere else, unquote. The mayor's priorities were quite clear. Polson wanted to keep and build on Los Angeles' position as a rising, glamorous city. Mayor Polson's sentiments greatly influenced what the city government prioritized and focused on. The city's agenda for modernization is what prompted the city of Los Angeles to offer Walter O'Malley the Chavez Ravine so readily, despite this business adventure going against what the land was supposed to be used for. It has carried on, and the Los Angeles city government's agenda for modernization is now the driving force behind gentrification today. The city has given more weight to the economic status and situation of the city over its residents. The Chavez Ravine was just the beginning of Los Angeles' city government's attempt to modernize the city at the cost of communities of color. Although Los Angeles may no longer be using eminent domain to evict low-income people of color from their neighborhoods, it's still happening. There is a gentrification crisis in Los Angeles. The city's agenda of modernization is the root cause behind all of this destruction and mass displacement. The same old excuse of revitalizing Los Angeles has been recycled by the city government when criticisms of gentrification appear. The origins of this agenda of modernization are outlined in the documentary series City Rising. The documentary focuses on white flight, which is when the white population fled cities in favor of suburbs when people of color began to settle down in cities. Cities such as Los Angeles have been trying to get the white population back to the city through modernizing it. 
making the place a trendy hotspot to appeal to the young adult white demographic. Hence, the Los Angeles city government holds developers in high regard and is reliant on the developers, meaning that the city is willing to make huge concessions to them. These concessions usually require communities of color to sacrifice the most, as seen in the Chavez Ravine, and the current gentrification crisis of Los Angeles, which has displaced thousands of people of color. The investigative report, The Garcettification of Los Angeles, conducted by Housing as a Human Right, is a thorough examination of the ongoing gentrification crisis in Los Angeles, and it also uncovers how exactly this crisis came to be. The report found that Mayor Garcetti and his committee have been approving corporations' requests for spot zoning left and right. Garcetti's excessive spot zoning approvals are one of the major driving forces behind gentrification. To understand what this means exactly, we must first look at zoning and the practice of spot zoning. Zoning is defined as, quote, a method of urban planning in which a municipality or other tier of government divides land into areas called zones, each of which has a set of regulations for new development that differs from other zones, unquote. So spot zoning is, quote, the process of singling out a small parcel of land for use of classification totally different from that of the surrounding area for the benefit of the owner of such property and to the detriment of other owners, unquote. Mayor Garcetti has abused his discretionary power to approve spot zoning requests from developers, showing no regard for considering if this request has legitimacy. Rather, these approvals are a show of gratitude for the campaign donations these corporations have made to Garcetti's past election campaigns and also an invitation for these developers to build their projects in Los Angeles. Therefore, in LA, developers have been able to buy land and build projects in neighborhoods in which most residents are low-income people of color that they shouldn't have had access to in the first place. By investing in areas that the city has historically ignored, the city is displacing thousands of residents that have long been neglected by the city. These neighborhoods of rich culture and communities forged by the residents, forgotten by the city, are being destroyed to create a more appealing and marketable city. The city's idea of quote-unquote investing disregards communities of color. These communities need city resources, but not on the way the city of Los Angeles is currently investing in them. In a 2010 interview with Hollywood Patch, Eric Garcetti explained his thinking in the revitalization, or more accurately put, gentrification of the Hollywood area. Quote, We staged seminars in which we brought the New York banks to Hollywood and showed them the opportunities. Whatever the project size, my philosophy is to let the creative entrepreneurs in. What we did was to use the nightlife to bring back the daylife, unquote. It's evident that the mayor of Los Angeles and the city council currently and in the past are more concerned with attracting people to Los Angeles rather than providing for and meeting the needs of the city residents. Gary Sossenberg, a public interest attorney who represents low-income clients, succinctly summarizes the issue with Garcetti's strategy. Quote, a lot of his policies don't match what's best for the people in Los Angeles, but a lot of people are getting rich, unquote. The legacy of eminent domain and the Chavez Ravine is clearly interwoven into the fabric of gentrification and the ongoing crisis in Los Angeles. Chapter 4, Final Thoughts and Takeaways The residents of these gentrified neighborhoods have been and are still protesting, fighting for their homes. 
However, the city has refused to take their demands seriously due to the lack of financial and racial power the residents have as low-income people of color. If Los Angeles has any chance of fighting back against gentrification and succeeding, it requires that every single Angelino is contributing to this fight. Especially new residents of these gentrified areas, you have a responsibility to the community to work towards preventing the displacement of low-income people of color. You have the financial resources to help and your voices are more respected by the LA city government. So use your voices and privilege to amplify the communities and activists fighting against gentrification. Some examples of engagement are advocating for rent control so that rent in neighborhoods that are being gentrified or at risk of being gentrified aren't raised, which prevents the displacement of longtime residents. Investing in organizations such as the Legal Aid Foundation of Los Angeles, which provides nonprofit assistance, providing free legal help to organizations fighting to keep residents in their home, and increasing their economic, educational, and wellness opportunities. Even showing up to local protests against gentrification. These are just a couple of ways in which you can help the people resisting gentrification. It is up to Angelinos to fight and protect our city. And that starts with showing up to the fight against gentrification and protecting Los Angeles residents, especially those most vulnerable to displacement. Well, that's it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening and some resources on gentrification and how to fight back are going to be in the episode description, as well as a list of all the sources I used for this episode.